Hello, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associate Health and Wellness Newsletter. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is issue number 44 for volume 12, corresponding to the week of October 17, 2022. In this week's audio cast, we're going to discuss medication errors, ER visits, literature review, and fatty acids. The free thought of the week is this. Blind spots in your life are a major source of disconnection. And when I mean disconnection, I mean with other people. Make it a choice to peer around the corner for a view into that which does not serve you. If you have behaviors, habits, or things that potentially are troublesome in your connecting with others, find them, pay attention to them, see if there's a way to shift them, mitigate them, so connection becomes more present and apparent in your life with others. The podcast that's corresponding with this audio cast is number 31 with Dr. Sandra Hassink. It is on childhood obesity. She is an expert with the American Academy of Pediatrics and one of the trailblazing researchers in childhood obesity. So give it a listen. Okay, let's look at medication errors. You know, in general, I try to avoid paying attention to internet criticism of our practice or myself in particular, unless the critique is actionable, realistic, and not just someone's frustration with their own experience based on a choice to be late, rude, non-compliant, or whatever else was going on in their lives. Critiques are highly useful when we use the information to learn and adapt to be the best care provider for a child or to be our best selves. Recently, a parent critiqued our practice twice under two different names, using similar information on the same day. While I may disagree with their review and even find them frustrating at times to read and look at, there is often a teaching point hidden among all of vitriol. Being curious and trying to find what that is is the key piece. Here's a portion of their review as copied word for word from a little context. The actually doctors are decent for the most part, but rarely prescribe any medicine to sick children other than recommending quote-unquote natural ingredients from the grocery stores. One time they prescribed my daughter eye drops that caused her eye to have an allergic reaction and almost ended up in the hospital. Not to mention they never prescribe antibiotics to help kids get better, end quote. So in this case, clearly there's a disconnect between the parent's understanding of how medicine helps, how it does not, and ultimately can harm, as stated with the allergic reaction that did occur. The critique is a shot across the bow for us to work even harder to educate parents regarding why a medicine is necessary and also when we need to avoid it. This takes time. It takes caring to help somebody understand there's a reason why we're not giving a medicine and that their visit seems to be of no value since they didn't walk away with any medicine. That is the farthest thing from the truth. Medication errors are a major risk for morbidity and mortality nationally and worldwide for that matter. The number affected skyrockets into the hundreds of thousands when we look at countless side effects that do not cause death but leave us miserable and or harmed. When it comes to the children that we treat, physicians and care providers should refuse to give a medicine unless it is absolutely necessary to the point of the above review. We have no desire to add to the statistics of medication-induced negative outcomes. Over the years of writing, I have tried to make it transparent that medicines are causing a lot of harm especially antimicrobials like antibiotics. The onus is ours to convince parents that drugs can be necessary, but only rarely. 
This weekend, I experienced the same anger from a parent demanding steroids for a cough because the cough had not abated over a few days. It is a tricky dance to take the anger and reflect back calm, measured reasoning as to why the choice to not prescribe the medicine is made. I would not give the medicine to my own child in this same situation, so therefore I have to honor your child's health and do the same. The parent walked out asking which way she can leave this place that doesn't help her children. Frustrating. Educating patients and parents is therefore the only way and key way to fixing the problem of overmedicalization for a given problem. Thinking about the best way to avoid medicine is to go back to the root causes of disease and mitigate them. God had a plan for us to survive in this beautiful world. It involves healthy lifestyle choices that keep our immune system strong and solvent. The body is protected through breastfeeding, movement, healthy food, and spiritual happiness. When this system fails, which it will at times, we then have medicine to correct the issue and allow the body to heal the imbalance where possible. Herein lies the key. Your body wants to heal. It wants to return to homeostasis. It just requests that you feed it the inputs that it needs to be correct or right. This is the reason that I love to treat children. They want to heal. They desire to run, play, and love. They don't want to be sick. They don't want to complain about it. Antibiotics, steroids, and other commonly prescribed medicines have consequences when chronically used and also rarely when used acutely. Antibiotic steroids and antacid medicines will go down in history as the best medicines when appropriately used, but also the worst when used in, in abundance or for the wrong indications. It is profoundly clear that we need to not eschew medicine nor embrace it solely. We need to use a medicine only when truly needed and not to make us feel better by doing something for a virus or other temporarily uncomfortable illness or symptom that can resolve without medication management. This is not an absolute, so much as a conversation of pluses and minuses in the calculus of our health. For you, the reader or listener, know that we try very hard to provide medicine appropriately every time based on the current science symptoms and patterns of disease. So as the winter approaches us, stay warm and healthy and practice lifestyle medicine for your own immune solvency. Part two of the medicine world, let's look at ER stuff. I recently read something in a Medscape article that I found fascinating regarding a buyer beware of the healthcare systems pushing patients toward the emergency room for high-cost care. From the actual article, quote, Frankie Cook remembers last year's car crash only in flashes. She was driving a friend home from the high school on a winding road outside Rome, Georgia. She saw standing water from a recent rain. She tried to slow down but lost control of her car on a big curve. The car flipped around three times, Frankie said. We spun around and went off to the side of this hill. My car was on its side and the back was crushed up against a tree. Frankie said the airbags deployed and both passengers were wearing seatbelts. So she was left with just a headache when her father, Russell Cook, came up to pick her up at the crash site. Frankie, then a high school junior, worried she might have a concussion that could affect her performance in an upcoming advanced placement exam. So she and her father decided to stop at an urgent care center near the hospital, excuse me, near their house to get her checked out. They didn't make it past the front desk. Why? Because they were told that the urgent care center didn't see issues of this type on acute basis. 
You can follow the rest of this article on the link in the paper. Um, there's more to it. But the moral to the story was this. There was a massive bill for just concussion. These issues can bankrupt you if you are not aware of the outcome risk. The total bill for this visit, according to the Medscape article, was $17,000. And this was just an emergency room visit. No surgeries, no interventions other than just some CT scans and evaluations. It was later adjusted down to $11,800 after a duplicate charge was found and removed. Quite crazy. Knowing the risk of immediate post-injury consequences for us can help avoid an ER visit and a backbreaking or crippling bill that leaves us in a state of bankruptcy. They go on to further state in the article, quote, the takeaway, it's important to remember that urgent care centers aren't governed by the same laws as emergency rooms and that they can be more selective about who they treat. Sometimes the reasons are financial, not clinical. It's not uncommon for urgent care centers, even ones in large health systems, to turn away people who have been in car wrecks because of the complications that car insurance settlements create. Although urgent care visits are less expensive than going to an emergency room, the clinics often can't offer the same level of care. And you might have to pay the cost of the urgent care visit just to find out you need follow-up care in the emergency room, and then you are stuck with two bills. So for me, there's a lot to think about here. How do you know do you need to go to emergency room versus urgent care? Very difficult for the average person to decide, right? But if you choose to enter the system, be fully aware that one, it's going to be very expensive, and two, there are misbillings going on, so don't pay right up front. Try and figure out what the bill is, why it was charged the way it was. Try and get you the best outcome possible financially. And three, know that there are ways to negotiate. Section two, the literature review. Article number one, particulate matter, otherwise known as PM 2.5, based on the size and inflammation during a viral infection notes a worsening response in those with the highest levels of exposure to PM 2.5 micron size particles. This study was prospective and noted that after the infection, bronchiolitis symptoms peak roughly within two weeks. The positive association between the levels of PM2.5 and PM10 about two weeks preceding the symptoms peak corroborates the hypothesis that high levels of PM might increase the viral load reaching the patient's airways. Growing evidence points out that PM2.5 and PM10 cause airway inflammation by stimulating the release of pro-inflammatory cytokines, examples IL-1, IL-6, IL-8, IL-33, where IL stands for interleukin. These are chemicals that send inflammatory signals around the body. High levels of airways inflammation are associated with severe bronchiolitis in turn. These data might explain the positive association found in the study between the severe bronchiolitis states and the levels of PM2.5 and PM10 exposure also in the few days preceding the severity peak. Overall, the study suggests a mediating role of PM in different stages of bronchiolitis, end quote. This comes to us from Milani, uh, M-I-L-A-N-I at all. So for me, avoiding air pollution is a simple measure that has high level positive downstream effects. HEPA filters in your house, increased air circulation, avoiding known sources of particulate matter and living away from highways are all good measures for mitigating risk. Article 2. In a recent study in the European Journal of Preventive Cardiology, the authors found that decaffeinated ground and instant coffee, particularly roughly two to three cups a day, were associated with significant reductions in incident cardiovascular disease and mortality. Ground and instant but not decaffeinated coffee was associated with reduced arrhythmias. 
This comes just from Chiang et al. C-H-I-E-N-G 2022. So for me, again, studies like this are really hard to prove causation. This is more likely a reality that caffeinated coffee drinkers have other behaviors that are also cardioprotective or that coffee is replacing a, be- a sugar-based beverage in the morning or a combination of the both. I am not sure, but I'm pretty sure that this is not solely a direct coffee effect or the chemicals like polyphenols that are in coffee. Article 3, vitamin K2, otherwise known as menaquinone, is a vitamin K subtype that has the ability to shuttle calcium to bone instead of to other locales related to inflammation. This is especially important for folks that have coronary artery inflammation. A test for coronary cardiovascular risk is called the coronary artery calcium score. Thus, reducing cardiac calcium is a risk reduction. Vitamin K2 is a player in that risk reduction game. The article is written by Haugsgjerd, H-A-U-G-S-G-J-E-R-D et al. 2022. Many vitamin D supplements now also contain K2 to address this issue. Natural production of K2 occurs in our intestines by a gut bacteria of the lactic acid variety. From the Linus Pauling Institute website, we see vitamin K is a fat-soluble vitamin. Originally identified for its role in the process of blood clot formation, K is derived from the Danish word coagulation. Vitamin K is essential for functioning of several proteins involved in physiological processes that that encompass but are not limited to the regulation of blood clotting, coagulation. Naturally, occurring forms of vitamin K include a number of vitamins known as vitamin K1 and K2. Vitamin K1, or phyloquinone, is synthesized by plants as a predominant form in the diet. Vitamin K2 includes a range of vitamin K forms collectively referred to as menaquinones. Most menaquinones are synthesized by human intestinal microbiota and found in, and found in fermented foods and animal products. For me, it's important to know where your vitamins are coming from. But the other key here is the calcium side of the game. When we think about calcium, the body uses calcium to build bone, but it also uses calcium to wall off inflammation-based problems that are chronic. You think about it again in a injury to the leg. You'll have a um, major bone injury from, let's say, getting kicked in the shins in a soccer game. You'll develop a bone callus, a form of extra bone heaped up over the injury that eventually will be resolved over time if the chronic issue goes away. I had many of these growing up playing all the years of soccer. On the flip side, if you have something like coronary artery vascular disease where the heart is consistently under inflammation, the heart vessel will eventually add calcium to it in order to protect it from further damage. So we wall off that which is problematical to us, sort of like fibrosis is the target end result of fiber being placed wherever there's chronic injury. So a coronary artery calcium score is a way to look for this sign of inflammation and risk for coronary artery vascular disease. So the body has a way of dealing with this. And in this case, knowing that the vitamins involved in this process, especially K2, helps to make sure that that calcium doesn't end up going to places that cause plaque formation and all the other stuff. Ultimately, I think the bottom line, again, is get to the lifestyle issues that lead to coronary vessel damage so you don't even have to worry about the calcium side. Section 3, omega-3 fatty acids. Fish oil continues to make the news. We recently, you know, looked at a bunch of omega-3 fatty acid articles and concussions But here, let's look at another indication that we have. Quote, 
This study aimed to investigate the association between DNA damage and blood levels of DHA, docosahexaenoic acid, and EPA, icosapentaenoic acid, retinol, beta-carotene, and riboflavin in Brazilian children and adolescents. There are 140 subjects that were healthy boys and girls between the ages of 9 and 13 in Brazil. Data collection included anthropometry, assessment of energy intake, and blood sampling. DNA damage was evaluated by single-gene gel electrophoresis. Principal component analysis was used to verify associations between blood concentrations of vitamins, polysaturated fatty acids, and DNA damage. PCA explained 70% of the inverse relationship between DNA damage and blood levels of DHA, EPA, retinol, and beta-carotin. In conclusion, omega-3 fatty acids were inversely associated with DNA damage in Brazilian children and adolescents and may be a protective factor against the development of future diseases. End quote. This comes to us from DeBarros, D-E-B-A-R-R-O-S et al. 2022. While this data is limited in its scope, it again points to a positive association between fish fatty acid intake and health. There is a mechanism to this reality improving the probability of these findings being true. Consume small oily fish or the fish oil supplements weekly. I think there is more than enough evidence right now to point in the direction that we really need to be looking at our omega-3 fatty acid sources. Okay. The recipe of the week is gingery ground beef, Soboro Donburi by the Modern Proper. Web length is in the newsletter. There's five ingredients, a few minutes, and a hot skillet, and you'll be digging into a delicious dish. Uh, you know, I think uh, nice, light, tasty dishes like this are something that we should be doing uh, more uh, exposure to or giving more exposure to while we try and find the best avenues to eating and feeling good about what we're eating. So some responses come up a couple of the questions from a few weeks ago. Do you believe that vaccines cause disease? 38% of the respondents said yes. And will you change your future vaccine use based on the new data? And there are three quarters, 75% said yes. For me, we're going to watch that date over time. Okay, finally, Song of the Week, Eyes of a Child by Sully Erna, E-R-N-A. Great, great song. That's it for this week, folks. Get on it. Have a lovely day. Remember to hug those kids. The disclaimer The information provided in this newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional. It is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue and does not constitute the formation of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.